0: I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Jackson Janayagam. He's the vice president and general manager of the direct-to-consumer business at the Clorox Company. Today, you're going to need to buckle up because Jackson's got a lot to share, and I have had to listen to this episode a couple of times just to take away all the key insights that he does. If you ever are interested in direct-to-consumer or what smart marketers across brand and performance are doing, you're going to have to really listen to this interview with Jackson. He gives us a lot of insight in terms of his moves from places like Chipotle to Boxed to Nutrinext, which is owned by the Clorox company, and how he's approached building his team there, as well as the tech stack that they're building and new products that they're launching, as well as what he's looking for from marketers that he thinks are going to be working well for him in the direct-to-consumer business. He also gives a little insight into where he thinks the direct-to-consumer business in the industry in general is. So a lot packed into this episode. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jackson. Well, Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, and I thought you've done a lot actually in your career, and maybe we should just kind of recap where you've been where you started and and what brought you to Clorox of all places
1: yeah I'll do my best to synthesize it so not to bore your your listeners so gosh I graduated in 2000 from University of Oregon on the west coast um, spent my first nine years on the agency side one agency in particular Wagner Edstrom between Portland Seattle and New York I started in PR um, I kind of fell into it man I didn't really know what I want to do and, and someone of my one of my friends at college was like we like to throw parties because I was in a fraternity parties he's like why don't you go into PR that's that's what they do. And, you know, he's referring to a publisher's job and I didn't know anything about that. I'm like, that sounds great. I can do that. And then of course my first job at a tech PR firm working for Microsoft, I didn't throw one party. I didn't go to one party. I did a lot of faxing. I did a lot of recording and a lot of Uh, (laughs) note-taking. And, um, you know, I think I made $23,000 a year, you know, right out of college, which, you know, at the time was great money, but definitely uh, made it difficult to enjoy my happy hours with my friends. But anyway, good experience. I loved it for a little bit. And then uh, I went on to work at T-Mobile again on the agency side in seattle and that's kind of when my career changed um i started doing a lot more in digital i started working with tech blogs in 2004 2003 so it's the early days um, i worked with the founders of Engadget and gizmodo and crunch gear like well-known blogs now and but you know back then there were guys who weren't getting a lot of notice from other brands and they really wanted access to executives to products to test out just like wall street journal and new york times would and um so i was managing that and that area started to blow up and i got more and more responsibility fell in love with this digital world i didn't know what it was yet started doing more in social media for for t-mobile and then i don't know if you remember the t-mobile sidekicks there's a bunch of them over the years yeah yeah so I launched every single one of them it was a you know it was a tight small budgeted team internally t-mobile there's like three people working on it and then me on the agency side and then like an entertainment agency and our job was to make it cool make it hot you know with uh, young people with influencers with celebrities in the magazines uh, do events and um, i was doing a lot of that and then Paris Hilton, of all people, had her sidekick quote unquote hacked. Um, her phone numbers were released of big name celebrities, uh, photos of herself that were obviously nothing um, she wanted out in public it became a big issue because people didn't know about smartphones. And the sidekick had like a, an app store. It had cloud based services. So all your content was in a cloud. And because someone was able to access her account through a laptop or a computer, they were able to get to it. So it became a nightmare on social media. And my team was charged with kind of helping educate the executives, T-Mobile and customer care on how to manage it. And, you know, we were able to turn somewhat of a negative into a positive. Um, so not to get a lot of people coming to the stores canceling. And so I saw the power of social media and so did T-Mobile. And, and from there on, it kind of changed my whole career trajectory. I started um, doing work for them, launching them on Wikipedia, launched them on Twitter, launched them on MySpace, uh, really early days, uh, uh, Facebook eventually. Really, really fun stuff, learning a lot, doing, I mean, we were doing things you would never do now, like creating fake profiles and adding people, you know, all these things that were totally go against the rules of modern-day marketing. And then moved to New York, uh, went to an influencer marketing firm, was very lucky to work on Old Spice before the Old Spice campaign. So I remember Old Spice was kind of a dying brand. It was like your granddad's cologne and then uh, white and candy was a creative agency that came up with that smell like a man the man on a horse and we did the 200 videos in two days in 2010 which was at that time very revolutionary for digital and my team led all the social media monitoring and conversation and influencer work around that and that point on digital marketing became my career um, i went to another agency to build a digital marketing practice working with clients like starwood diageo nike uh, Jordan Brand, p and and a bunch of others. And ultimately, that's what landed me at Chipotle as a head of digital. And unlike Bullspice, I went into one of the hottest brands, arguably in the US. And then five months later, the food crisis hit. And my purview was all digital. So social media, email, web, mobile content, in-store digital, a little bit of e-commerce, AI. So as you can imagine, all that happened on social media. So my team went from like creating really cool, fun programs and engaging customers to like crisis mode for about a year, uh, trying to get stock back up, trying to get people back in the store. It was a, a you know a crisis that I think is already being studied in a lot of grad school programs and and i don't regret that time but it was definitely nothing i expected and it kind of changed my whole perspective on kind of uh, the role of digital and social and how important it is to really be able to manage and get ahead of a crisis so learned a lot there i wouldn't want to do it again and after all that now they're bouncing back I mean in a great way but at that time it was you know before all the changes to the executive and board level so Boxed recruited me a startup out of a New York Soho um, e-commerce startup to be the CMO so I went there for about two and a half years or so and learned about e-commerce learned about startup world about fundraising and, and venture capital industry and, and, and the financial industry really and, and that's when the performance marketing side I was already doing the digital side and learning about the analytics and numbers but you know when you're a CMO of an e-commerce startup the performance and the financial piece becomes a core part of what you're doing versus ancillary and that's when i learned to appreciate it's like getting a grad school degree alan Uh, i learned to appreciate that side of it which you know after two and a half years of that and startup world is you know positives and negatives after doing that it allowed me to then roll into this role as a gm where i'm being trained you know essentially to become a CEO or president, you know, running a, a P&L a team of about 80 people, so a relatively small team across the country, everything end-to-end supply chain, uh, transportation, logistics, because we're all direct-to-consumer, product uh, assortment, R&D, of course, marketing, technology, product experience, analytics, data science, um, even HR, and of course, financial. So um, it's been a really fascinating ride I went, I went trader for the world um you know I've been a year now at clorox and you know every role some of it luck some of it timing um has challenged me um as you can see i've gone through different verticals and industries different functions and that's what i enjoy about it. i never went to grad school you know so i intentionally avoided it i don't like school i gotta be honest i don't do well at tests i don't like studying but i love work so this is kind of my, my way of learning and, and, and educating myself so happy to talk about anything you'd like but that's kind of my, my career in a nutshell
0: well, you've definitely had lots of twists and turns in your career. Were there any pivotal mentors along the way? I'm curious if anyone sticks out.
1: Yeah, there, there's a couple. There was um, two. A guy by the name of Rowan Beneky at Wagnerstone. He was my... Boss, I mean, he's a group boss and my boss um, on T-Mobile. He recruited me to leave the Microsoft account, and go to T-Mobile. You know, at the time, that was my first real move for my job from Portland to Seattle. And T-Mobile was a small account, and Microsoft was the behemoth that Wagner. And you know, I was kind of worried about that. He's like, "Listen, I've gone around the world for jobs. I've moved cities for jobs. Moved my families for jobs. And you know, I can tell you, it can be one of the most rewarding things. If we're willing to take that that leap of faith." And he taught me how to do my day job, but also how to how to work things without outside the confines of the normal rules, you know, in, in essence, when you are doing NPR, a lot of relationship building with journalists and how you it's you could just pitch them and as a transactional kind of relationship, or you could build a relationship with them and kind of work on like, how do I give you something that's a benefit and value to you? And how do I get some benefit and value from you? It's like the real world, right? Of relationships and, and how deals get done. And it was so funny. I never seen that world. I always learned like very old school academic way of doing things. And he kind of taught me the street way, you know, it's like, this is really how things get done. And it was such a fascinating guy, not just a PR, like forget the PRP, it's just a life. Like how you I navigate my career and people would really people first and you kinda of play the opponent versus the game. You taught me a lot about that kind of stuff. And then Corey DeBrow is this guy. I also met there Wagner, and now he's like head of comms and public affairs for Google, according to the CEO. He was at Starbucks, Nike, um, Salesforce. Really great guy. I mean, he's an Oregon duck like me, so we bonded there. But he really has become a mentor to me in a lot of other ways, You know, from a marketing standpoint, from a networking standpoint. He got me on my first board role, a nonprofit board at the University of Oregon Alumni Association. He's been someone I go to often. He's also a reference for me, but someone I go to often for guidance on my career, on, on things I might be thinking about. Even though he might not be working the same feel of me. You uh, might not have the same functional expertise. He's just got a great, broad, global perspective on the way the world works. So, you know, I didn't seek them out. I was lucky enough to have them. And I've had people ask me, like, you know, how do you find a mentor? I'm like, I don't know if you find a mentor. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be someone, but I don't think it works that way personally. I think it's just a matter of you find people in, in your world personally and professionally. And if you're lucky enough, you, you meet someone you connect with and you think you can learn something from. And usually mentorship should be a two-way street, in my opinion, and you build that relationship. So... Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to.
0: That's awesome. Well, you talked about the role at doing D2C now at Clorox, and I'm curious, like, what. Prompted the switch.
1: Yeah, I was. um, I got named to this Forbes list. I was really proud of that. I mean, it really meant a lot to me. It was a CMO list in in 2018, and it was a great time because I was starting to think about what my next move was. My my wife and I were, I think, either expecting or about to start, hopefully expecting our our second daughter. And you know, it's a life changing moment. It's like, okay, like where do we want to be? What do we want to do financially, but even geographically, professionally, personally for ourselves? You know, not to be very transparent, but like, you know, we're like struggling to figure out, like, okay, do we want to buy in New York? Can we afford to buy New York? Where do we want to raise kids? You know, like all those things that many of us have to deal with and discuss like what is the ultimate goal here so going through that I had some challenges in my, my, my role at Box at the time. And I was like, maybe it's time for something new. And uh, I was getting approached. I had some opportunities in front of me that were the classic CMO roles at early stage, mid-stage, late-stage startups, you know, ones that are really well-known and maybe going under a lot of fire right now and, and ones that are less than known. And then some, even some Fortune 500 companies out there where it was either number two uh, to the CMO or a head of marketing and, and transition to becoming a CMO. And some of them I got ruled out early. Some of them I, I was still in the interview process for. But nothing was exciting me, Alan. And it was just like, eh, feels like the same thing. I don't know if I'm really gonna be challenged here. I've done a lot of different things. I knew I had a lot to learn. I was talking to my wife, I'm like, God, you know, I worked for CEOs, CMOs, executives. I feel like I want the mix of this person and this person. She's like, well, you work for like five or six different executives now. You know what you like, you know what you don't like. Maybe it's time that you become a CEO. I'm like, well, I'm not gonna start my own thing. We can't do that now. You are a second kid on the way. She goes, Well, but maybe maybe you can find a role that gives you more of that autonomy to be the boss versus be the number two to the boss because you have a clear vision on culture and people and hiring and, and that kind of business. want to build it. And, And I never thought of myself as like, you know, some people, they want to be a CEO, right? They're like, from day one out of school, I want to be a CEO and run a company. I never thought of myself like that. I was always like, I, mean, I fell into PR for God's sake because so I wanted to throw parties. Like, I by accident got on track to be a CMO. You know, I, I just like having fun with my work and meeting with I draw my energy from people. So it's about the people. And then as she said that, I'm like, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe it's time I think about this differently. And, and at that same time, it's kind of funny how life works. Two roles present themselves. And one of them was a Clark's role, and both were similar. One was a CEO of an early stage startup, hadn't even launched yet. It was an incubator out of a, a venture. Capital Studio and then this one. And uh, Clorox is the opposite of everything I was looking for. I wasn't looking to go to a big CPG. you know. I perceived them to be slow and perceived CPGs to be behind the times. And then I meet with the folks and particularly my boss and uh, he's on the executive committee at Clark's been there for 30 plus years. And he, is, he was talking like a VC. He was talking like a startup guy. And like, wow, this is really refreshing and fascinating. I mean, he wanted to move fast. He knew, understood data, technology, understood about iteration and testing and failing. And we talked about all those nuances and then building a team and the way he was talking. I'm like, man, this sounds kind of fascinating. And then within five days, he had interviewed six people. They moved so fast. And I didn't believe they would. And, and they didn't. And I had an offer in hand two weeks later. Meanwhile, the other company I was interviewing for started to act like a big CPG. It was like 15 interviews over a month long. I'm like, well, wow, the roles have switched here a little bit. And, um, you know, it's sometimes it's roles that don't look sexy on paper. I'm sure you know, this are the best roles for you. And, and then I started looking at my wife I was like, listen, you, you've taken all the sexy jobs, Chipotle boxed, you know, they were good experiences, but they didn't really work out the way you thought they would maybe to take, you know, the George Costanza, right? If I've done everything one way and it's not really working, Maybe I just got to do everything the opposite. So I was like, you know what? Maybe you're right? This seems like as opposite as I can get without starting a new career as a firefighter. So I was like, all right, let me, um, let me go down this route. You know, Clorox GM role, um, working on supplements and health and wellness. Okay, fine. Let's do it. And it's been 10 months. So it's still honeymoon, but it's been the most amazing experience. I've learned a lot. I've made a crap load of mistakes, but yeah. Long way to answer your question, but it kind of roundabout way I ended up here.
0: No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about the business you're running, NutriNext and supplements. And where did it start? And where are you guys going? Where are you headed?
1: Yeah, man, it's been fun. So, so Clorox acquired NutriNex about a year and a half ago from a private equity firm. And NutriNex has been a supplements company. So, they own Natural Vitality, which is a magnesium product, Rainbow Light, which is a very popular prenatal and multivitamin, all natural, Neocell, which is a collagen product, which collagen is like everywhere these days, I feel like. Um, I just heard about a collagen latte um, product that's like eating shelves. So, I'm like, oh, that's pretty interesting. So, they own these products that are really popular. You go to Whole Foods and GNC and Kroger and Costco and you see all their products, but they didn't do much direct consumer They had a small direct consumer business that was kind of nascent. It was doing pretty well, but it wasn't huge. And they bought that as well as part of the purchase. And they said, you know, we don't really have anyone here who's going to run this or could run this, but let's go get someone who's a CMO at a fast-growing startup to, to drive the growth mentality here um, because we see a lot of opportunity to do this, but we want to do it right. Similar to P&G, you know, all these guys have acquired D2C companies. Every every CBG or retail has a different model on, on how they build out D2C, right? Either through acquisition in that team or through acquisition asset, hire people in, or you just build it from scratch. So this was a Acquire something and then bring in the people to, to run it and then build upon it. So they brought me in to do that. And now, you know, I'm leading D2C for all the natural vitality or all the uh, Nutrix retail brands, as well as we launched a new brand actually last week called Objective. It's called ObjectiveWellness.com. So it's in beta. We're still testing out a lot of things. But the goal is really to be a leader in health and wellness, in particular, right now, supplements and direct to consumer for Clorox. But I'm also working closely with the Birds Bees team to help think About what does direct to consumer mean for Burt's Bees? They already have a brand presence in the shop. I think we could do a lot more there. And then, you know, health and wellness could be expanded to food, aroma therapy, technology. If you think about skincare and, and beauty, so health and wellness is actually a pretty broad category. Clarks also owns Brita, so Brita would be in there. So my focus has been to like really redefine how D2C fits within Clarks' strategy and build out a team to support that. So my, my last three months, my first goal was to get the right people in here to compliment the talent we had, and, and that's what we've done. So you know, my my executive team comes from as well known as startups as you can imagine. My head of product came from Brandless. She was one of the first employees of Brandless to help launch the Brandless site. My head of growth came from Plated and Retail Me Not. Our head of analytics and data science comes from Jet. Um, our FP&A comes from Amazon. And now we're building out the teams underneath them. We've hired a couple other people from Plated and Brandless on the product side, on the growth side. and uh, a couple other people from from some well known startups for the creative uh, roles. So I'm really we got our head director of retention coming. coming from Talkspace and Updater. So I've created this connection of D2C e-commerce startup folks who love the idea of uh, running and operating like a startup within a larger company. So you don't have to fundraise all the time and having a little bit of that safety net, but also, being able to transform the way you think about things. So we're excited about what D2C could look like at Clorox, not just limited to supplements, but really broader um, health and wellness.
0: You just talked about talent, and it doesn't seem like it's been hard for you, but I would have thought it would have been hard to convince them to come. Oh, dude, it was
1: impossible. I mean, they'll tell you that right now. It was not easy. I mean, I have a first off, I have a great recruiter at you. She's recruited my whole executive team. She recruited Sarah, Natasha, and Vivian. Now she's working my head of creator role. And the funny thing is, you remember that game when you were a kid, Alan, that tag game where one person was it, and the 15 other kids would run towards that person. And once you tag one person, they become it with you. We called it Bulldog you know that game sure.
0: yeah 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 and then
1: as you tag more people they get more people and then eventually it's down to one kid and you get you're all chasing this one kid uh, actually sounds pretty horrific if you think about that poor kid i never thought about that <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> we didn't think much of it at the time i guess but anyway that was my game i was the one kid they, they tagged and now i had to go get these people i'm like okay head of product is a critical role I didn't have one and that's hard one to recruit for us i brought julie on julie she hired my head of growth at box for me she's great she went on her own at the same time i took this job she left true search to go do her own thing. So it's perfect. She was hungry. Eager, wanted to, to get a great first client. I was her first client right when she started. And I said, Go get me ahead of product. You know the industry, you know the e world And she found me, Natasha, and we had a great conversation. Natasha came from Apple and Sephora before Brandless all on product roles and loyalty roles. So she was exactly what I wanted in San Fran. We didn't have a San Fran office, we have a big Oakland office at of Clorox, but I had no one else here. It was just me. And we talked for two hours. I was in Arizona driving through the desert. I'll never forget that. I was like selling her. I was like, listen, like I don't know what this is gonna be. There's gonna be a lot of failures and it's gonna be so hard. And and we're probably going to mess up way more than we're going to succeed in the first few months, especially. But I know I need smart, empathetic people. I look for three things. I look for curiosity, empathy, versatility. And she had all those. And I told her straight up what I look for. And as we were talking, I'm like, can you come do this with me? Come build this with me. With you, now I can go hire another person on the growth side. I can go hire an analytics person. I can go hire a creative person because now we're telling a story. And, you know, she understood kind of my vision. She understood the value of people, but she also is a hungry, ambitious leader. So she was like, I want autonomy to be able to do this, but I also want to learn. I'm like, great. That's how I view it. I I know I'm not ready for this role completely. You know, I look at it as like, I know 70% of my job, I'm not 30%. She was in the same position where it's like, okay, you're going to learn a lot of things, but you're going to bring a great deal of knowledge and it'll be a great experience for both of us. and, And we'll go recruit more people. And that's what we did, and, and she was the first one I recruited. And it was hard, right? First thing she asked Julie is who's Neutronext? Why is Clorox doing this? Clorox is really slow, aren't they? They're really big and you know, Julie had to explain oh, yes, but no, and here's what they're doing. And then after I recruit Natasha, then I got Vivian, who is my head of growth, and same conversation. Then she talked to Natasha. She's like, Oh, this is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Vivian and I ran the same circles in New York, so she knew a lot of the same people I did in the e-commerce startup world. And she started back channeling on me, <laughs> asking, What's this guy like? Is he the real deal? Like is he is he full of bullshit? is he full of shit we honest? Or is he is he the real deal? Is he gonna you know commit to what he's telling me? I when she came on board, then we went after Sarah as a head of data science and analytics. So it wasn't easy. I mean, we went through a lot of interviews, a lot of other people, a lot of people didn't even respond to the emails from Julie, and she would tell me, because it was like, they get offers from Away or Allbirds or Uber or Postmates. Like Those are brand brand names everyone knows, especially if you're in a startup community. So NutriNX, even Clorox, that's not maybe necessarily appealing if you're coming from Peloton, right? So we had to work to get there. But once you got them on the phone, we saw the vision. And I think, honestly, I think this day and age, people want to believe in people. And, and I think they saw... Hopefully that, you know, I was genuine in my belief in people are everything. And if you value people, you treat people like adults, they'll behave like adults. So get rid of all the other crap and just focus on building a business as little as politics as possible. It can be something pretty amazing. And I was actually pleasantly surprised to have more response than I thought I would, given we weren't like a a sexy name per se, like those other brands.
0: Got it. You're running a D2C business. I'm curious how in your mind, and maybe it doesn't, does D2C differ in terms of the capabilities and the types of people you need to run that business versus say a more, a different business whether there's QSR or, or online retail and the boxed example?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I consider boxed D2C to too, right? So like I would say it's more akin to box and brandless and jet. I would say the differences would be compared to like a, a supplement brand that is in retail or um, a CPG actually, or a retailer, right? A traditional retailer like J Crew or, or Bed Bath & Beyond. So I think but the big difference is, I mean, you know, smart people are smart people, that's one. And and empathetic people are empathetic people. So those are things I go for no matter what, obviously, like anyone I, get, I would hope would. But I think the, the hard skills with D C are really, everyone says beta, being data driven. I think it gets tossed around way too much, Alan. I, I like data inspired. I think it's a balance of using data to start to validate or refute your ideas or, or thesis is, or start to find a nugget of information that you can then scale or optimize, but then also balance that with heart and instinct and experience. So I think it's about data inspired, not data driven. But I think that mindset of like analytics is, is a core part of how, who you are, whether you're creative, whether you're a marketer, financial lead, whatever product, so forth. The other piece I would say is versatility of like someone who can just do lots of things. I think that's a big difference. And this is more of the startup side versus D2C, but I think they kind of go hand in hand in d2c you know you could be a product person but you also understand acquisition you understand the funnel you understand the power of creative you understand the financial performance if you're an fpna you're doing modeling like a data scientist you're doing conversion optimization like a growth hacker so like i think there's a lot of go-between whereas in traditional roles if you're a creative director. You're not all of a sudden doing loyalty programs. You're not all of a sudden running RD assortment. And I think that's a big difference. The other thing I would say is finally is um, critical reason, curiosity. I think, again, in e-commerce and startups, it's about, hey, like, don't take everything at face value just because someone thought of something or, or an executive said something. Don't just assume that's what we have to do or don't assume like that's what the consumers want. So everything is a test. Everything's an iteration. People talk about test and learn all the time, but I don't know if everyone really means that. I think the key with testing and learning is doing it with a find end goal or, or result one way or the other whether it's what you want or not that's not the point and doing it in a, in, a, in a closed timeline whether it's a few weeks or you know a month or two months not like endless testing and learning at some point you just pull the trigger so you know i think the big thing there is like you're able to question things challenge things so just because i come into a room and say oh have we thought about launching cupcakes on our site and i walk out and a lot of businesses people want to be like oh the gm or the ceo just said that let's just go do it i think in, in direct to consumer e-commerce companies you don't really have that luxury it's like well let's think through this. Like, does that really make sense? Should we even test it? Should we ask why? Like, I think there's a lot of critical reasoning there. That's not something to say you're not going to get that in other companies by any means. I just think the nature of our business has trained you as such that you kind of, you're cynical, you question everything in a good way, you challenge everything in a good way, in a respectful way, and you don't take anything at Facebook.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
1: value. I think that's more that data inspired mindset. So I think it's a few of those qualities and characteristics and, and being nimble and being resourceful, of course, right, is always important because again, e commerce, it can be tough on margins depending on what you're shipping and you know, your cogs and your transportation costs. So you gotta be like really tight and smart about how you think about your logistics, it can be easy to blow through that if you discount too greatly to drive volume, to drive um, high revenue, just for investors, for instance, and also you destroy your margin and profitability is, is becoming more and more important again. So and I think those are kind of go about saying that you have to be able to be nimble and scrappy um, because you know e-commerce and D C can be a very financially challenging business to build and run.
0: Got it. You mentioned launching a new brand or a site, objectivewellness.com. Tell us about that. What's What's that all about?
1: Yeah. So as I came in, you know, we were looking at some of the brands. We have a couple of good boomer brands uh, that targeted like a 55, 65 plus, like my parents. And we have some good younger, call it millennial, early Gen X brands, Rainbow Light and, and Natural Vitality and even NeoCell. But as I was thinking about where we want this brand to go and thinking about the funnel, this is one one where we're like, okay, well, let's, let's think about ultimately what's our foundation what's the technology we need and we basically originally had a homegrown system and it was just pieced together in very classic startup mind uh, mindset and it was great for when it was launched but now is the time to evolve into what a proper tech stack would look like so instead of going to a Shopify or big commerce, we chose to build a custom tech stack we've codenamed Olympus uh, where the Greek gods used to live so Every time we codename a new product on top of that stack, it gets its own Greek god kind of name. You know, whether it's uh, Athena or Zeus or whoever. So Olympus is the core foundation, and um, that has a combination of custom built pieces and bought pieces from OMS to PIM to a data warehouse to um, a database processor to a payment processor to an ESP and so forth. But what's really cool is we used a brand that we launched Objective, what we call Objective, on top of that, and it's really targeting Gen X. We wanted to open up the funnel. We fought, felt like Gen X is a forgotten sandwich generation. Everyone's talking about Boomers and their adoption of online e-commerce everyone talks about millennial even gen z but the irony is gen z is the kids to the gen x the gen xers are me i think maybe you alan like we grew up on amazon we grew up in e-commerce we both work both people in the household work we have the 2.5 kids we have a dog probably taking care of our parents in some form or fashion and yet sometimes like the oxygen mass in the airplanes we forget to take care of ourselves and we're always busy taking care of other people so our, our, we use that metaphor as like hey you need to take care of yourself so you can continue to take care of those that are important to you because we know how important that is to your, you and your life. And that's not just women and moms, which I would argue is the old school kind of you know, CBG mon- mantra, right? Like the mom, the CEO ho- the of the household. I think who we're targeting is really both parents who are both busy executives, both working and don't have minute to spare. So saving a buck isn't as important as saving 25 minutes, right? To be with a family or to work or whatever it is. So that brand is really targeted towards this idea of like taking care of your family, whatever that family is. It could be you as a single parent. It could be you as a same sex couple or cohabiting couple. It could be you and your dog. That could be your family. It could be you and your sibling or you and your parents and whatever it is, right? Taking care of you so you can take care of others is really our premise there and using it through science-backed efficacy. The products we have are all natural ingredients. We have all that because the family brands we have and all the great resources we have here. But really this idea that going after an audience that's kind of under-marketed to, not really talked to, we felt was a really powerful position, but- What's especially exciting is this is kind of the first time Quarks is launching its own D2C brand, and we did it in three and a half months, and this will be a constant incubator where we might launch other brands or other site experiences on this Olympus tech stack, and it allows us to learn from what objective it is. objective. objective could be a huge business or it could be a small, good-performing business, but the learnings we can get from it can then expand and scale to other brands, new or existing.
0: I like it. I like it. I like the fact that you've built this platform yourself. I'm sure you bought, like you said, bought some solutions. We bought some, piece yeah, yep, right. some pieces of it. Yeah. Right. And basically, you're standardizing with your first product launch, which is. That's great.
1: right. And then we can bring on other brands within the Clorox family, the other brands I mentioned, onto the stack. We can also launch a pet brand now much faster because the, the back end is built. Um, it can scale. It can scale to as large as we need it. You know, that's always a challenge if you do a Magento or a Shopify. You're tied to their roadmap, and those costs keep going, going up and up as you grow. So we didn't want to punish ourselves based on that. We didn't want to be adhering to their product roadmap, even if it's very diverse. So this allowed us to, and we, what we call a headless commerce, right? So the front end is completely separated from the back end. So engineers and devs can ensure that it's a stable, credible site experience. But our product and marketing teams have full interoperability to go customize whatever they need. So that's also we wanted that that agile kind of environment for our different teams who may or may not know um, JavaScript. They don't need to. They can just go in there and build out their own experiences through the CMS for the front end, but the back end remains integrity intact. So that was really important. I mean, that was such a different world for Clorox. That's not what they do, right? And it didn't take a lot to convince them. My boss and the executive team, they really understood what we we're trying to do. We had a 10-person engineering team here, like a six-person product team led by, by Natasha, as I mentioned earlier. A great creative team. We brought in these guys called Lexicon Branding. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm-hmm. It's this PR guy Hey God, he's got a great job. He basically, his job is to name brands. He doesn't design logos. He doesn't do any design systems. He just comes up with a name and generally it's a made up word or a word that's an everyday word that you've never thought of. So for instance, some of the brands he's named in like 10 weeks sprints usually is Sonos, Blackberry, Swiffer, Dasani, Fios, PowerBook, Febreze, Spotify I think was on there. I mean, he's named some household name brands who his team and his exercise. So when I found out about it, I'm like, oh, I gotta hire this guy he came on and helped his name objective. And uh, he did impossible. So like you, you think of a company that has a random name attached to it or a word that's an everyday word. He likely was involved with naming them. And the funny thing is almost all those brands I named, I couldn't imagine them being named anything else. What else could Swiffer be? What else could Febreze be? What else could... Blackberry V, right? So we're hoping Objective can be that kind of same vein. Now it's up to us how we market it. We have a nice logo and logo lockup. So we try to bring the best and brightest, but on a scrappy budget together. So we didn't hire big consulting agencies. We didn't do years of research. Our research is now. We're testing and learning right now, and that is our research. And again, that's very different than what the traditional model is. But that's I think that the uniqueness that we're bringing here, um, which has been fun for the team here. That's what you know that's why I hired them for.
0: What's the unique challenges? I mean, you talked about some of them being part of a large company, and you can think of some of them. But are were there any? challenges that you, along the way, that you were surprised by?
1: Yeah, nothing. Well, I'd say challenges that I was surprised by. No, not really. I mean, I was going to say there's pleasant things I've been surprised by. Um, but the challenges. I mean, the talent stuff was tough, but I knew that coming in. But they've been great, and great. Right? Give me resources to help me there um, and supporting us and supporting uh, our vision here. I would say, you know, little things like, you know, just the meetings and like how we plan out ahead like that's been a nice change of pace um so that did surprised me but you know we have to take that into consideration like when and how do we meet for things when do we plan out a years in advance or versus I'm thinking weeks in advance and quarters in advance, you know, because of the nature of my business. So I wouldn't say any surprised me, but it's also because I've worked with CBGs for so long uh, from the agency side and then it boxed. Uh, so I, I think I was eyes wide open. If anything, I was pleasantly surprised at how less of an issue it was at Clorox in some ways. Like I was able to get things done faster because of my boss, honestly, because he went there and he made the argument like, hey, we need to get this done. We need to move fast. Whereas if I was at P, PNG maybe or other bigger CBGs, it might have been a little bit more nuanced because they're so much bigger, right? Clorox, while they're big CBG, they're not nearly as big as some of those, the Fortune 10s. So I think that actually helped a little bit. They're kind of nimble in their own way, relatively speaking.
0: Well, it sounds like you had, I mean, you, you mentioned your boss, and I think you said he'd been there for 30 years. You've got an insider as your advocate, which is awesome.
1: Oh, man. He's a literal insider like, <laughs> and also... Uh, True insider, right. And I think uh, people say this all the time, you know, how many people stay in their jobs or leave their jobs because they're boss. It's not the extra few thousand bucks you got at bonus time or merit time. Of course, money matters and titles matter. But man, I don't know. I've been doing this for 20 years now. You have two, Alan. Like, you know how this works. Like a good manager gives you autonomy. For me, at least gives you autonomy, gives you freedom, but guides you gives you clear direction, tells you kind of what you need to achieve, sets you up for success, but tells you when you're messing up, doesn't wait for the review time. All these little things that aren't so little and fights for you, but is honest with you, like the spinach and teeth kind of mindset, like tell you how it is without worrying about how awkward it could be for them and without embarrassing you, I think is such an important element to the job. And like for me, when I come to work, every time I see his name, the first few months, I'm like, oh, he's calling me. Is something wrong? Now I'm like, oh, it's Michael. Like, He's so pragmatic and practical and it just allows me to do what I do well, which is be an operator to execute and build this business and not get caught up in other things. And, and I try to take that and, and do that for my teams. And then if you do that right, it trickles down and then it becomes easy to recruit for because I hear so many people. We recruit so many people from the startups and big companies who come complaining about all things we've all experienced. And we're like, hey, we're trying to treat people like adults. So you can come in whenever you want. You can leave whenever you want. I don't care. When you take time off, I really don't. If I'm worried about that, that means I'm not worried about the business and I've, I've d- I haven't hired the right people or I'm insecure in my own abilities to manage. So for me, it's about you do what you need. You work from Met Stadium, you work from a beach, you work from your apartment, you work from the office. I don't care. Just get the stuff done and communicate. And uh, you know, he's allowed me to have that mentality and mantra, which I've always missed. I never really had that, even though I thought that's how it should be. You know, I don't need people just sitting at a desk, taking up time and space and not doing anything. I'd rather you go somewhere else. And that means you'll be productive and happy.
0: I want to switch gears a little bit. So if we step back from Clorox and and NutriNX and just think about D2C in general, what do you feel is the state of the D2C movement right now? Are we starting to hit a saturation point? Is it just beginning? Where do you think we are?
1: I guess it depends from whose perspective, consumer or the operator or the investor, right? (laughs) So the way I look at it as an operator, it is effing hard man like anyone who who's in my role in a marketing role and product role tells you any differently even if you're airbnb even if you're uber or, or away like branch with a lot of buzz It is hard, right? Like you're competing for a lot of eyeballs uh, with a lot of other bigger brands. You're competing on Facebook and Google in a way that we never competed before. Algorithms change and now your whole performance marketing plan changes. Like you can't get enough PR, right? Uh, One bad move by a founder and this other startup now impacts all the other startups. One VC mishap now impacts you. Oh, you missed a big check from this one investor that you needed, and now you're you're crunched for cash in the bank. I mean, there's all these things that, you know, whether you're a startup or D 2 C that are really challenging, the data piece, and as GDPR and CCPA become important, like our companies are ready for that. So as much as everyone from the outside sees direct to consumer is the thing as an operator, it is hard, man. It's hard to scale and grow. You know, maybe zero to 10, 0 to 15 million, not so hard, right? Because I think you can you can scale that easily, relatively speaking, if you have a good product. But once you get to 50, 60 million revenue, then it's like you're really fighting. It's no longer you can get to 150 very easily. Like once you get to a certain point, man, that, that's a tough road and you got to be ready. You got to be gritty for that. So I'd say that's hard. That's a big one for as an operator. I would say as a consumer, I don't think it's saturated. I think it's changing. I think anyone who thinks retail, physical retail is dying and going away is crazy. Cash is not going away, nor is physical retail. How we use it, where we use it, what purpose it serves, how you access it. In both examples, that's completely changing, right? So the physical footprint of a retail store starting probably with the coast and going in is changing dramatically. What e-commerce looks like from an omni-channel experience completely changing. Do I buy off my phone, my web browser versus my app, for instance, or my, my laptop and then go pick up I think that's going to be a lot more of a um, play that um, uh, not only pure play, but physical retailers have to think about it. Like, what's that middle ground? Amazon's already doing it. Instacart clearly opened that, those doors for groceries. So that's a huge opportunity. And I think anyone who hasn't even thought about e-commerce or DTC, who is in the physical space, retail space, for instance, is definitely a little bit behind. Uh, and I think if you're not selling uh, your own products, like you're a cpg you have to think about it a little differently, right? So you, yes, you have your retail partners, but how do you strategically also launch or create a D2C expertise so you can go direct to your consumer and own that data and own the customer experience and, and really tell a story there? And if you're pure play D2C, whether you're scaled or small, how do you think about even early on, like investing in marketing, for instance, in advertising that's above the line and TV that used to be, you would never go do TV until you hit like a billion dollars. It's like wasted money on brand per se, but you know, brand and performance now go hand in hand. Five years ago, even three years ago, it's like, oh their brand marker, their performance market. It's like, no, man, it's, it's all, it's
0: all the one
1: yeah. they work together, right? You can't have performance without brand. You can't have a brand if it doesn't perform. So, you know, I think, it's hard, it's challenging. I think we're going through this huge and we continue to go through this huge transition, even though it's still in this nascency. I don't think it's saturated, but I think C as it was five years ago is no longer the case. But I think it'll continue to evolve into more of an omni-channel, like what's old is new, and what's new is old, weirdly enough, right? So as I see big brands like Nike go into performance marketing and, and data-driven marketing, and then I see startups go to sponsor the NBA finals and have big athlete endorsements and get stadium deals and like do TV at scale. And it's like, wow, this is such a fascinating thing it's like these two ships passing each other and we're going in circles so you you gotta, you gotta be able to do it all I guess is ultimately the answer but it's not saturated by any means it's just changing
0: I got it. Well, I love to get to know the person behind the topics we cover, and I would love to ask you my most favorite question, which is there is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today?
1: Wow. Uh, I mean, I would say you know I had a a rough childhood. Like it was not rough as people have really rough childhoods, but like it was tough. We moved around a lot. I was son of immigrants, uh, only child. Moved here when I was one. So I was in that one nap generation where my parents fled a civil war in Sri Lanka my grandma like scaling walls, you know, at 65 to escape her house, leaving her house and all her stuff behind, jumping in a boat, you know, giving my parents a better life or my mom a better life. And then ultimately, you know, my parents leaving, giving me a better life when I was one, just escape a pretty bad civil conflict. So I grew up in this like world where I wasn't Western because I go home to an Eastern culture, but at home I was like Western and I didn't really know where I fit in as only kid and in, in Southern Virginia, and one of the few minorities and then moved to Canada and similar kind of experience, but now in a different country. And, you know, again, I'm one of like Five minorities in a school of three thousand, kind of deal, and you no, know, it was a challenge. It was tough. My parents did the best they could. My my mom and dad both worked. My mom actually worked two jobs with my dad through school, his grad school, until he got out and got a job, and she was able to spend more time with me and also work. But you know, I learned a lot from that. I learned I didn't appreciate them to be quite honest. I didn't appreciate my culture if I ran away from it. So I would say. And then I went to international school when I was 17 because I basically kicked out of my middle school because I, I skipped too many classes because I just didn't want to be there. I was getting into fights and they were like, we're going to hold him back. And my parents were like, no, you're not. You didn't really provide a great learning environment for him." So long story short, the only school that would take me was this international school that wanted more English speaking students because they were recruiting people from all over the world, like Canada, Mexico, or Mexico, uh, Colombia, Japan, Hong Kong. And um, all those parents wanted their kids around English speaking students. So long story short, they're like, well, we need him to help us recruit, you need a place that will let you go into 10th grade, done. So my point is, like that was an interesting environment because it changed my whole mindset. Like I, I went from being this victim that was always angry to like learning about these other cultures and other people, people who didn't speak any English. And I was learning like Mandarin and Cantonese and Spanish and Japanese and like a Two or three year time frame with these friends and learn about their culture, and it really opened my eyes to the world out there. It really made me be more empathetic, it made me put myself in other people's shoes, it made me realize what I had. And my life wasn't that hard, it was really fascinating. All these things I was angry about were, were stupid teenager, you know, first world kind of problems. And it was a lot of things happening during those three years in that high school that really uh, allowed me to appreciate so much in my life. And it had nothing to do with what job I took on, but I do think it, it, it informed how I treat people, how I look at people, um, how I value people's opinions. I always just Believe in you know, you believe in the people, you listen to people, no matter what job, what title they are, what what level or status they are. That doesn't matter to everyone equally. Treat them with kindness and empathy. Um, you assume best intent. So I would say as cheesy as that is, man, that all that stuff that I went through that wasn't even that much informed who I am and how I treat people. And at the end of the day you know, my kids and, and, and as they grow up and, and whenever I pass, I want that to be my legacy that I raised kind kids and I was kind to people as much as I could be. And I treated people with respect.
0: Well, that's awesome. That's a great story. You seem like somebody that always takes a pivot or a change. And I don't know how, but finds the opportunity in it, if you will
1: yeah I get lucky man I mean it's all like nothing I'm doing that's crazy smart I mean I wish I was like know, I read all I love this management leadership books I read read Shoe Dog recently I'm in the middle of everything store like those guys are visionaries man like I mean and I look at Stitch Fix and Katrina like visionaries and I wish I had that I think it's a little bit of like I get bored Uh, maybe I take some risk more than I should I took a job in the recession right after it and I took a 10% cut in my salary coming in they're like hey everyone's got a salary but we're cutting it 10% so we can avoid layoffs so I probably took took some stupid risk but my thought was like if I'm not happy. If if I've done everything I can to be happy here and enjoy my job and and be challenged and and I'm not feeling valued, it's a monotonous job, I need to go find something else. And and so I've been lucky with taking some risk, pivoting. I just don't ever want to be caught. I'm sure you are too, Alan. I don't want caught just doing the same thing or caught like as change is happening, I'm, I'm flat footed. You know, I want to try to adapt to change. And they always say it's not the smartest or strongest to survive. It's the ones I adapt. So I just try to force myself to adapt and to change. I think my upbringing also forced that in me. So I'd say it's mainly luck, man. I've just, you know, lucky hasn't bit me in the ass yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, what keeps you going? What keeps you going? What fuels you?
1: People, man, I, I'm an expert. You know, I like my moments of introspective solace. I'm an only kid, right? After all, and my car rides home. I lived in New York for 12 years until five months ago. So my subway rides home or my car ride home now is my time to myself. But man, when I'm around, people who truly care or good people, with, again, empathy and like a putting in work and are smart and are you know really care about what they're doing man there's nothing like it like when I had my whole team here last week we had everyone in from all of our offices and the energy here was just amazing and right after launch and we all knew how hard we worked. Nothing was perfect. We made a lot of mistakes we got on each other's nerves we had late nights and my head of engineering pulled five all nighters in two weeks and it was tough. But that energy from the people man, that, that's what kept me going. And then of course my family too my kids, my daughters watching them grow up at six months and four years old, my wife like they keep me going too they keep me honest too keep me grounded and make sure that you know I, I don't take anything for granted. But I'd say it's those things. I could tell you, it's the learning, it's the you know, the business, all, all that stuff. Of course, I have an ego. We all do. Like, I want to do well. I want to get praise. I want to make money. But at the end of the day, it's the people around me that, like, I don't know. That's what I feed off of.
0: I've got two more questions for you. Are there any brands or companies or causes that you think other people should take notice of, or that you're you're starting to notice yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm big on causes. I'm, I'm you know I'm on a few non nonprofit boards. I'm actually on a plug my one of my nonprofits. am on is Peace Direct. Peace is a really cool nonprofit based in DC and UK, and they basically go into underdeveloped countries like Sri Lanka. And Sri is one of the countries and they go find local communities, local influencers, local village p- folks or local people within small communities or villages. And it could be religious folks. It could just be elders, family members. And they they work with them to help solve crimes against war and help solve civil conflict before it happens. So Oftentimes, a lot of these countries that you never hear about on the news right, or in South America, in Africa, in South Asia, happen because something happens in a small community, small area that bubbles up, right? And it could have been bubbling for years, but there's a moment usually that happens. And unfortunately, a lot of times it involves children, right? Children, war, children who become war generals and warlords. I mean, it starts young, but they're on the front lines. They're the ones, they're not Western folks who come in for three months to help solve it. They, they know these people, they know them since they were kids, they know these families. And if you can identify where those points of conflict are, you have the right inroads in there before any other NGOs get in there after After the fact, which is usually too late, this community, this company, Peace Direct, this nonprofit helps address those wars and gives them resources and helps them broker peace talks and helps them negotiate and helps them find funding for things so that one thing that leads to another thing, like a a kidnapping, that leads to one thing that leads to murder, leads to more murders. Now you have a pure civil conflict that is like reached critical mass. They help solve that well before that happens. And it's pretty amazing to see what they've done. They're small, but they bat them ahead of their way. And it's really amazing to see uh, what they do in these, these underdeveloped countries that you know, these are conflicts you never would have heard of, um, because they were able to head them off before they got there. Um, you work with local community leaders.
0: I love it. That's a great organization. Last question for you: Where do you see the future of marketing going?
1: I don't know, Alan. If I if I if I knew that, man, I'd probably be doing what you're doing, and making uh, a lot of money at advertising. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I think there is definitely this thing of the CMO role. You read all these articles right? it's going away. It's becoming a CCO, a CDO, uh, even a CEO. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen at scale. Um, I think there is definitely this thing of marketers need to understand the financials not just data the financials they can't be a cost center they need to be a profit center they need to help understand how their impact drives top line and even bottom line in some cases i think you're starting to see more pressure on that i think so that's a bigger trend for executives in particular i think the role of agencies is very fascinating i think the the role of an agency a big agency that does everything for you on retainer is gone i think small agencies, small boutiques independent freelancers consultants that do a variety of things that act as a partner and you reduce that headcount you reduce how many people you're paying for part time. You're getting a larger amount of certain full um, on site integrated into your team. I think that's going to be more of the model. So I'm fascinated by that. I would say the other one is probably going to be how. You see brands working together in a way you never have. Before, you used to be so competitive. Like if you're in a category, you would never talk to another brand. Now I'm starting to see more and more brands share learnings, work together, come together for a common cause or common good, even if they're somewhat competitive. And you see that a lot in startups, but I think you're starting to see that with larger brands in terms of how do we share and learn and, and kind of work with each other. I'm in a startup Slack, for instance, in the, a New York startup Slack. It's got 400 people, all marketers, and product folks from startups in New York, all big and small. And it's so funny to watch people from like Harry's and Dollar Shave share learnings and tips and tricks on tools and best practices and their competitors, right? And back in the day, you would never see two big retailers talk to each other and share, learn, try to be the opposite. So I think that's kind of a new way of thinking. So I would say those are three things that I'm paying a particular attention to in marketing.
0: Got it. Well, Jackson, thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, man. Really appreciate it.
0: Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.